and welcome back to a Dream and a Fear. Uh, we've been off offline for a while. Uh, Hugo and I have been away for the summer, but we're we're back and we've got a few great things lined up for you. A few nice projects in the pipeline, so please do stay tuned for future episodes. We've just come off a call with uh, Carlotta Gall, senior correspondent with the New York Times. Yeah, I'll step in there. Thanks, Max. Um, yeah, no, we we uh, she supported the writing of Afghan Napoleon, um, supporting her father, who wrote a book on Ahmed Shah Massoud, a Mujahideen leader uh, from the 1980s who fought not only the Soviets uh, but also the Taliban, uh, and we sort of used his life to really map out exactly what had happened. Uh, over that period, those decisive years uh, that led to the rise of the Taliban and just how of an important role both Pakistan had and also even America had at creating the sort of almost letting the genie out of the bottle for, um, in terms of the Taliban. It was a great chat. We even had, she was um, calling in from uh, Istanbul and we had the call for, call for prayer midway. So it was a, it was a really great uh, hour and slightly off topic, but um, I think you'll really enjoy. So we'll leave you in the warm embrace of Carlotta. Carlotta, it's a real pleasure to have you on the pod. Um, today we're going to be talking about um, Ahmed Shah Massoud, uh, Afghan Napoleon known to some. Uh, and Carlotta's written, a, uh, her father's written an excellent book on it. The story really starts, though, in the 1980s, when Afghanistan turned to communism, which sort of inevitably led to the involvement of the Soviets in the country. Carlotta, for, for those that don't really know the history of this time, could you explain this period and how, how does Massoud enter into this uh, framework? Yeah, well, that's really where the book begins and where my father got involved um, as well in Afghanistan. So the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan in uh, Christmas Day, 1979. Um, Reagan was in power. No, well, Reagan came later, I think, but um, Thatcher was in power. Um, and they, she and then Reagan, who came to power soon after, um, mounted a very... Um, determined uh, defense of the Afghans against the Soviet occupation. Um, and they started to support the Mujahideen, who were the Afghan resistance, who started fighting on their own. They were already fighting the communists before, the Afghan communists, before the Soviet invasion. And then they started uh, more, the, the rebellion spread. It wasn't a rebellion, it was really a, it was a, a resistance against the, the infidel invader by then. Um, and the, the Americans and the British in particular, the French as well, started to support the Afghans who were fighting the Russians. Um, and that was, that was really when the British decided to send someone out to see and find what famously became um, this phrase that my father used to, to entitle the book. Uh, so it was a, a senior guy in MI6 who sent out one of his underlings to say and said to him, go and find me the Afghan Napoleon. And uh, my father interviewed him years later. And when he asked, well, why, why Afghan Napoleon? He said, well, he, he, I wanted them to find a young artilleryman 
who was capable of going on to, like Napoleon, become the emperor of France and lead the country. And so that's really, uh, that really intrigued my father from the beginning, that the British were, had found um, someone, an Afghan um, resistance leader in the mountains of Afghanistan who was, you know, fighting the Russians with very little um, weapons, very little training, um, really unheard of, you know. Afghanistan was one of the poorest countries in the world, still is. Um, and it was just extraordinary in the 1980s that they could even think to dare to fight the Soviet army. Um, but they were, and so my father traveled out there in 1982, so two years into the war. And in those days you had to go, you know, you had to go over the mountains on donkeys or on foot, on horses. Um, and he traveled with an arms convoy of the Mujahideen and he went and found um, Ahmad Shah Massoud, who was in his own home valley, mounting this extraordinary resistance to, to the Russians. And the Russians had already recognized that Massoud was a, a, a serious opponent because they'd mounted at least six offensives against his valley. Um, he, had, he was based in a very strategic valley where, where, which overlooked the main artery to the north for the, the Russian supply routes. So he became quickly a thorn in their side. And so they uh, mounted repeated offensives up, up the Panshir Valley, which was where he was based, and where my father traveled to find him in 1982. And, um, when, when I go and do talks with my father um, for the book, the book launch, he often reads the passage where he first saw Masood. Um, and he remembers him just sort of walking up a hillside from the river. Um, um, and he describes him as quite a slight man, um, but energetic. And then when he met him, he noticed very intelligent eyes and a quick mind. Um, and then, as he saw, he stayed there for several months. Um, that summer of 82, he saw Masood manage this extraordinary defense um, against this Russian, the Russian tanks and, and jets and, and uh, helicopter gunships, uh, which was an extraordinarily terrifying um, ordeal, I think. But um, Masood took it lightly and handled it very well. And so, my father came back with a documentary film in uh, um, in the in the cans, as they say, um, and and then wrote a book, and and that started his whole um, his whole connection both with Masood and with Afghanistan, and he re went back repeatedly, and followed his career and followed his his ex increasingly successful fight against the Russians, which was which was extraordinary. Wow, thank you, Carlotta. And, and as you've just referred to, a major part of the book focuses on Massoud's uh, struggle against the Russian invasion. Um, at just 28 years old, his bravery obviously led him to the famous nickname, the Lion of Panjshir. And what, what do you think it was about him that made people or, or Afghans so willing to fight for him? I think, yeah, I think it, the, I, I actually met him as well, and I always remember that. Um, sorry about the door slamming. Um, so I think um, I think my father um, shows it very clearly how from the the moment he first met Masood, um, he he relates a story of how 
um, all types of people had flocked to his side, and he saw there was a there was a, a baker's boy who joined up and became one of his top fighters, um, and then there was a man who was a mechanic and a welder who'd come and was was fixing or re repairing or remaking weapons from old ones. Um, so really, he had anyone and everyone, but they were mostly farmers. Um, and laborers who who were in the valley, um, who were the natural people who joined him, and I think he he often uh, my father often wrote about this. I think it was his intelligence, but his natural leadership um, ability that he was he was organized. He listened to everyone, um, but above all, he he was a clever tactician and a clever strategist. So he he um, was able to run rings around the Russians. And of course, that was a great, his great success in, um, in showing people how they could fight and survive to fight another day um, made him hugely popular. And, and then I think he had a natural charisma. Um, but what my father noticed from the start was that you know, Afghan society is very traditional, and usually the elders decide things, and the older men, the white beards, are the ones who are consulted and who decide things. But here you had a 26-year-old um, leading man of, you know, twice or even more of, of it than his age, and I think that showed immediately that he had an ability to lead, and people um, wanted to follow him. Um, and, and he describes that, you know, you saw him, he saw him sitting in a, in, a, in a room with lots of people waiting to talk to him and he'd be writing letters and he, so he was really in command right from the, the day one. And Masood was one of a number of Mujahideen leaders who rose up against the Soviets. Um, but in these early periods and something that Steve Cole highlights in his book, and he says that Pakistan and even CIA influence in those early years particularly strengthened the more extremist Mujahideen, Mujahideen leaders like Hekman Shah. Do you think this is a fair interpretation? And do you think long term did it influence the direction of Afghanistan's political and uh, religious future? Undoubtedly. And in fact, my father writes about that quite at some length. Um, because he saw it uh, at first hand, that Masood, um, particularly that he, he was in a remote valley and he didn't come to across the border to Pakistan, to the camps, to meet the diplomats and meet the, um, the trainers and so on. He, he sent his men to be trained, but he didn't personally um, come over during the war. And so that made him rather the remote from the political influence that he could have wielded. So he... He, uh, for that reason, but I think a, a stronger reason that Pakistan really led the decision making for the Americans on which commanders to support, and they decided very much to uh, to to follow their selected leaders, and they particularly went for I think not only the extreme more extremist, but they went particularly for the Pashtuns as well because they saw that as the bigger tribe and the one that they they had the most influence over because Pakistan has many Pashtuns in its own 
country, that the Pashtuns are divided in, in the two countries. Um, and so Pakistan was basically wielding its influence to promote its own choices. And America was very much led by that and went along with that. Um, and my father really does, I think like Steve Cole, he really exposes that as very flawed, uh, fundamentally flawed, because um, Pakistan had its own aims and supported certain groups for its own, in fact, promotion of religious extremism. Um, that has been its long-term long um, method of, of controlling its own population and controlling Afghanistan. And Masood was seen as too independent because he resisted that control from Pakistan. Um, and he was also remote because he was in his territory in Afghanistan and didn't come out for for meetings and for you know peddling influence. So um, that that I think was my father expands on that that he thinks that was a fundamental mistake. Um, and it went on into the 90s when Masood did take control of of Kabul, um, that he didn't get the Western support that could have been vital in changing the course of history after that. Uh, the Panjshir Valley has now uh, obviously become something of a, of a symbol of resistance even today, you know, in relation to recent news even, and you touched on it before, but could you explain perhaps something about the features or the topography of, of, the, of the region which makes it such a, a, a sort of... A, fierce or, or difficult place to, to attack. Yeah, no, it, it is an extraordinary place, um, Panjshir, because I mean, it seems made for, for what Masood did. It, it reaches, it runs northeast, you know, southwest uh, towards Kabul, um, and it's a narrow, very highly sided, uh, high mountains either side valley. So it's very, there's very actually very little um, agriculture along the bottom. Um, a lot of irrigation channels um, come off the, the rushing river that goes down. Um, and so small mud village, mud houses, you know, mud brick built houses um, on the sides of the valley and then um, narrow, small terraced fields. And then this fantastic rushing river that uh, plunges down and goes through then a very narrow gorge at the bottom as it then opens out into the Shomali Plain, which goes towards Kabul. Um, and where that gorge comes out, it, it comes straight onto the main artery that runs from Kabul north to the border. And that was the Salang Highway, goes across, crosses the Salang, through the Salang Tunnel up to the north. And that was the main route for the Russians to bring down all their equipment, their tanks, and, and all their, their weapons and their supplies and their fuel, everything came down from the, the northern border with the Soviet Union down into Kabul and to Bagram Air Base, which is just north of Kabul. And so the Panjshir Valley just cut right into that. So it was perfect, um, uh, protected, you know, um, mountain valley, but it also had this with, you know, within arm's reach of the main artery for the Russians. So that's where 
Masud used his his you know strategic uh, positioning to um, ambush a lot of the Russian convoys on the Salang, um, and then retreat back into his valley. And then when the Russians came up the valley to to uh, try and seize the valley and, and wipe him out and his fighters, his fighters and, and the villagers would all climb up into the mountains and sit in the caves. And so the Russians would bomb with jets and fire with helicopters and then they would land paratroopers up in the heights. Um, and every time he, his men would, would manage to get away and then come back right down and, and fight again. Um, I mean, there was one time when it got very grim. He, they had to evacuate the entire valley of of civilians uh, because the Russian offensive was so heavy. Um, but really, um, it it geographically and topographically, it was a perfect place for um, you know a, a guerrilla war uh, because they could just melt away up the side valleys and up into the mountains time and again. Mm. And yeah, I guess it's, it's, it's a common theme with invading armies in Afghanistan. Um, but I guess, Absolutely. you know, was during this time, what was Massoud's main aim? Was he fighting against communism or was it foreign intervention or perhaps both? He started as a young man um, as, and he was actually at the Polytechnic. And so the interesting, very interesting chapters my father's written of his early life, which is very little known, but, you know, he started um, in the 70s uh, studying at, at college in, in, um, in Kabul. Um, and he, start, he joined the Muslim youth and he became an activist um, at, at university, at Polytechnic. And um, he was essentially a conservative who was against the growing influence of the Russians in the country. Um, and... Um, some of his classmates and friends at the time point out that, you know, for anyone who was against, he was also against the sort of extremely authoritarian rule of the then president, um, Daoud, um, and who was leaning towards Russia. So there were sort of two, two sides to the, you know, the um, disagreement he had. Um, but when you were a young person of that time and you were opposed to the authoritarian government of the time, which you felt was going towards too much towards Russia, the only avenue was essentially the, the Muslim Brotherhood League uh, um, tilt. And so that's where he went. Um, and, you know, he gradually, uh, he, he became, I mean, he was very, very convinced uh, Muslim. He, he was very religious himself. He prayed, uh, you know, five times a day. He, he often spoke of the fight that he did as being a religious fight. So he really believed that Afghanistan should be free, should not be communist, should be, um, have free religion, which meant, you know, it's, it's Muslim religion. Mm. Um, but as, of course, the years went on, he, he did fight the Russians for that. He hated them for enforcing um, their rule, um, but also enforcing atheism in the in their schools. Mm. Um, but when he came, you know, he came to um, he came to to continue the fight over the years. He also started to oppose extremist um, Islam, and in particular, uh, as you know, Al Qaeda and, uh, and Taliban, which we can talk more at length. But uh, they he saw as um, 
aberrations of Islam mm. and you know e extremist um, uh, um, misuse of of the um, of the religion, and so he he became increasingly moderate, uh, pro um, pro choice, pro um, democratic uh, ways. He believed in you know um, Afghans being allowed to elect their own leader, um, and so he became a, a great uh, um, opponent of the emirate as as the Taliban then wanted to install and did install. So uh, it's quite an interesting curve of his life, but he was a convinced Muslim, and that was a huge, hugely important to him in his life, his religion. Um, thank you, Carter. And and you touched upon the kind of distinction between his, his version of Islam versus the, the more mm. extreme version. But, but obviously after the Soviets left, uh, the, the power vacuum was then filled by the kind of uh, inevitably by the Taliban and how did you know based on the differences he had with the Taliban how did they come to uh, or how, how did they how do you say cohabit the, in the country so well it was very interesting because I mean for, for Masood it was it was a learning curve I think as it was for all of us you know the the Russians left the Mujahideen it was seen as a great success the Mujahideen eventually um, overthrew the Afghan communist government um, Masood was in the forefront of that. He um, he led the uh, the attack on Kabul in in 1992 and and seized control of the of of the country essentially by by seizing the capital. But then the the Mujahideen could never agree. They started to fall apart. He was attacked by Hekmatyar, this Gubuddin Hekmatyar, who had been supported. Uh, by the Pakistanis, and he, Hekmatyar, was furious that he wasn't the president and the leader, so he started rocketing the city. Uh, it, the violence grew and grew. They started fighting more and more. It was the, some terrible years of infighting through the 90s, and that allowed the rise of the Taliban. But what was interesting was that Masood even supported the rise of the Taliban at the time, because mm. From his viewpoint, in and and his leader Bur, um, Burhanuddin Rabani, who was the leader of his party Jamiat Islami, they regarded the Taliban as a relief, as you know, as a um, uh, a Muslim movement that was certainly um, moral and good, and would be um, would be better than all these feuding, sometimes uh, outrageously. Um, criminal um, Mujahideen groups. And so they, they, ha they helped and even um, supported the, the rise of the Taliban in the south. But then when it came to Kabul, Masood actually drove out to meet them one day. And he went on his own with very few guards to sit down and talk to the Taliban. Because he didn't want to fight them, but he said, let's talk and let's work out how we do this. Um, and they uh, they gave him very short shrift. He sat with them, but he came back and he told his his commanders at the time and his his aides, um, it's impossible to talk to them. They're not their own bosses. He instinctively felt that they were not the ones he let, he met with, who were all the top commanders, that they weren't making the decision and that they were under orders from from others. Um, and that became um, 
it, that became the moment when I think he thought the Taliban was not some, a, a force for good, mm. um, that actually they were set on taking power and sweeping everyone else aside. Um, and mm. he felt at, he, at that time that he, he represented the government, the Mujahideen government. So it was, it was an interesting um, moment for Masood. And from then he resisted the Taliban. He didn't welcome them in. Um, and he, he fought them, but then when he realized they were more, they had managed to encircle Kabul and they were about to take it, he pulled back, he pulled back to Panjshir and let the city go, mm. which, which saved the city from further destruction. Mm. But it was actually in a terrible mess already um, by then. Um, so it, it, it's, it is an interesting thing because we, we often feel, um, as, as, you know, as journalists and observers, um, you know, did, why did we not see what the Taliban was or what was coming? Mm. And I think even the Afghans themselves um, only only gradually understood quite what the Taliban, how extreme they were and what they really represented because mm. um, they had seemed at, at first um, just wanting a unified country and stability and so on. Mm. Um, but I think he did understand um, that they were... Um, that they were too extreme and, as he said, not their own masters. And this comes to the point that I think my father has written about a lot and I have also, which is that they were the main proxies of Pakistan. Mm. And they, were, they had huge support from Pakistan and their main aim was to take control of Afghanistan so that Pakistan would have um, a friendly client state next door rather than... Um, a, a, a government that they didn't control or didn't have influence over. Mm. And I, yeah, I guess while we see the support from Pakistan, what we don't see is support from the US, particularly from Massoud. Do you think that had an overriding factor on the rise of the Taliban? Do you think it would have been different maybe if the US had backed Massoud in those early periods against the, the Taliban? I think definitely. I mean, I couldn't agree more that with um, Steve Cole, and I think my father points this out. And one of my father's um, his his producer on one of his films, uh, Nigel Ryan, who was the editor of ITN, he also wrote this that you know he he it was extraordinary that the Americans didn't support him because he was not only the ablest of the um, the commanders in fighting the Russians. Um, but he was also a, a strategist mm. and he was pro-Western to boot. So why they couldn't see that. Um, um, but, the, but the Americans didn't. And, and what's very clear is, um, and I think this also comes out in my father's book, is that the Americans were supporting uh, the Pakistani plan, which backed the Taliban right up to the moment they took Kabul, mm. um, and and my father even relates, you know, talking to to American officials about it, and they they basically didn't didn't want to support Masood, and um, they sort of I think the Americans always did they waged this war in Afghanistan through the you know by using the Pakistanis to do um, to manage it as it were they supported it but they had. Pakistan managed the war, and um, 
that was just the way it was. So they then therefore followed Pakistan's um, arguments. And of course, so they did support the Taliban all the way up as they swept through the country in 1996, right up to the gates of Kabul. Mm. And then one of American official went to, to see Masood and he understood from that meeting that they didn't, uh, they weren't going to stop the Taliban and they didn't support the government, the Mujahideen government anymore. Mm. And so that I think was cru- critical in him pulling back. Um, and, you know, I think he saw the, the, he understood that they were saying, don't stand in their way. Mm. Um, so, um, yes, I think it was very short-sighted of, of the Americans. Um, and I think ev- everyone understood that much later because, in fact, soon after, because I remember, um, I think it was Hillary Clinton. No, it was Madeleine Albright, wasn't it? I remember soon after the Taliban took control in Kabul the first time in 1996, Madeleine Albright suddenly... Um, you know, spoke out against them because they were, she was the, the Secretary of State at the time, and um, she spoke out against their anti-women behavior. Mm. And suddenly I think the world stood up and realized they're not so favorable. Um, but I think the Americans really, really just walked into that um, almost, you know, almost sleepwalking. Mm. And I don't know if that's a very good answer for you. Yeah, no, I think it is. Retell that a bit. No, I think that was great. That that covered a couple of the questions that we had, definitely. Um, And I guess one simplification that's often made is the not being able to decipher between the Taliban and Al Qaeda. Where does Osama bin Laden come into this, and how? What was his relationship like with Massoud, if he had one? Well, that's very interesting. I mean. I don't think Masood ever met Bin Laden. Um, I don't think they had a relationship. But Masood did meet. He did have. Um, he did meet a couple of Arabs who came to visit him. One, one stayed with him for some time. Abdul Anas, and and Masood even in his his diaries um, writes about meeting Abdul Azam, who's the original Palestinian who set up. The, uh, the Arab Services Office, which was the precursor of Al-Qaeda. Mm. Um, but Masoud was, I think, a little bit also cautious about these Arabs. You know, he, I, he, always, uh, he always said, and I think this, everybody should have thought about this much more, especially in the last 20 years. He always said, we don't need foreign troops. We don't need foreigners to do the fighting. We've got plenty of Afghans and plenty of soldiers. Uh, what we need is, you know, supplies and weapons and and support and and, and money. Um, but he um, and he famously also told that to the Iranians at one point. The Iranians were getting very agitated about the Taliban um, because they'd attacked their embassy and killed some of their people. But he, Masoud, was very influential there and said, "Don't." Don't invade us, Afghanistan. You'll only rue the day. Mm. But just give us support, and we'll we can sort it out. And I think if he'd been alive after 9/11, I think he would have said that to the Americans very, very strongly. Don't come in. Don't bring in your troops on the ground. 
um, and to the British, he would have said it, mm. um, let us do the fighting, help us, train us, that by all means, but don't come in because Afghans in the end don't like foreign soldiers on their own land. Yeah. So um, I think he would have, he would have said that, um, yeah, he would have said that time and again. And I think uh, also, I think the Taliban need to remember that for um, as, as they go forward with mm. the influence of Pakistan, because the Afghans will turn against them in mm. the end. Uh, and if they have a lot of foreign fighters too. Wow. It's, um, it's, it's quite something that's quite peculiar to Afghanistan. They're very, very resentful of foreigners who come, do, don't come in peace. You know? mm. Yeah. Well, I think many people have learned that, haven't they? Unfortunately, <laughs> um, the 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 Mas- sorry, yeah, Masood's United Front uh, was obviously the last stand against the, the the Taliban. And how far would you say that this battle against the Taliban was an ethnic one? As you've mentioned, the sort of Pashtun divide within the country already. Um, yeah, it seemed to be because certainly the f- certainly I think both times. I mean, the first time particularly though, the the Taliban was a force that came from the south, um, quickly swept through the Pashtun areas, and many Pashtuns joined them, um, accepted their leadership quite quickly, um, and then it, you know they took when they came to Kabul and they came to Herat, they they started to to fight against the northern tribes, as we tend to call them, because most of central and north Afghanistan um, is, it belongs to ethnic minorities, or they are the, the, the main groups up there. So, so suddenly to take the rest control by force of the rest of the country, the Taliban found itself fighting these groups. Um, and they handled it, you know, very aggressively and um, you know, very badly for them in the end because they weren't, you know, they, they committed massacres through the Hazara, the Shia areas. Mm. They had terrible fights with Masood. Um, they had uh, um, some, they had a terrible massacre and then a, um, a, a defeat of their own people um, in Mazari Sharif. So a lot of brutality and a lot of bad blood spilled in the late 90s. Mm. And so um, that, that caused great, great resentment. So of course, when 9-11 did happen, um, there were plenty of people to join up um, and join with the Americans, but join with the United Front to, to push back. Uh, Masood concentrated very strongly on not making it a, an ethnic um, fight, though he didn't want um, uh, he didn't want it just to be the ethnic groups from the north, namely the Tajiks, the Uzbeks, the um, the Hazaras. Um, he, so he worked a lot and um, very hard on drawing in other Pashtuns and other groups from mm. all over the country to join him. But inevitably, the the other groups were less because he his strength was in the northern areas where he'd built up years of resistance and networks. Um, and so he had two main Pashtun leaders with him, and they had some of their troops. 
Um, that was namely Sayaf from the Pagman area and then um, the Nangaharis from Jalalabad. Um, so he, he had a united front in the, the sense that he had every different ethnic group in his united front. But of course the, the majority of the force was from the northern tribes because mm. that was the northern area that he still controlled towards the end. Um, so, but he he felt very strongly about it, and he and he um, insisted on making a united front rather than what often people call a northern alliance. The northern alliance is a Western term, in fact, mm. um, just which is a sort of you know easy way to describe it. But um, he very much wanted it to show that there were Pashtuns and others also who were against the Taliban. So I think they're trying to do the same again now. His son is is trying to run the uh, the National Resistance Front, he's called mm. it. Um, and it remains to be seen quite who is with him because mm. they're very, very divided, the opposition to the Taliban now yeah. in its early days. But that's his aim. I think he remembers the lessons from his father that um, it, it's not it's not just... An ethnic divide, but mm. of course, it's being felt very strongly now. There's a very, very strong anger among the minorities about um, the rise or the takeover of the Taliban. They mm. feel really, really resented, resentful, and betrayed by by so many. I mean, I think there's plenty of Pashtuns who are suffering right now under the Taliban. Mm. Um, but there is, I think, I think I notice it every time in Afghanistan when there's a change of of leadership or change of government. There's, there's the the ethnic divide comes to the fore, and it's just I think the pain and anger and distress of everyone that it becomes exacerbated. Um, but I don't think it necessarily will will last or will break apart because what what I think we many of us Afghan watchers have seen is that uh, Afghan Afghans are amazing in that they they don't have separatist movements they all see themselves as being part of Afghanistan and even if there's um, rivalry between the different ethnic groups and and tribes um, they all see themselves as being part mm. of Afghanistan, so um, long term, I st I still don't see the country breaking apart. Mm. But you do get this terrible uh, um, bloodletting and revenge, um, yeah. which uh, plays out. Yeah, you know, yeah, you can, yeah, and you can absolutely see that with the way the Taliban are treating the Hazaras at the moment. Um, yeah. But I guess, yeah, on on that sort of ethnic question, do you think it really? was ever realistic that there could have been a non-Pashtun leader of Afghanistan in, in Massoud? That, that was the great test, and no one quite knows. Um, you know, I think a lot of the... I, I think a lot of the people in government, in, even in Britain and in, um, in America, would argue that, that you have to have a Pashtun mm. to rule Afghanistan. Um, I, I don't think that's a given anymore. Certainly the Pashtuns are used to ruling and they um, um, they always have and you know, there's only been a, one Tajik leader for a very short time. But um, 
but I think we also saw that uh, that the West could could push their own things. I mean, you know, we, the West chose Karzai, everyone accepted him. Mm. The West then chose Ashraf Ghani and, and people accepted him for at least some time. So I think, I think if he'd had support, uh, I think if he'd, if he'd been encouraged and if, you know, to, to share power, there was, a, there was a moment when he had a great understanding with a Pashtun potential prime minister and he wanted to work as the defense minister and have a uh, Pashtun prime minister that, that that could have worked. I think he was ready to um, to to share power or build power in in a joint in a very Afghan way. Um, so I think it could have worked um, I, if he'd had support. but I think one one thing that I remember was very interesting in one of the interviews I attended with my father when he was talking to um, an old friend um, and companion of Masood was he said that when he took power, he seized Kabul in 92. You know, he did the successful uh, assault on the capital. He never, Masood never had understood quite how much, he just presumed it would be welcomed by the countries that had always supported the Mujahideen, namely Pakistan, to the east and Iran to the west, and what he was shocked to under to realize um, was that they both were unhappy with him seizing control because mm. they'd both had other ideas. Pakistan wanted Hekmatyar to take over, and Iran strangely wanted something else. You know, another plan it had, and so the resentment against him suddenly upsetting their plans. Um, was unexpected and I think really hurt. Um, not only hurt him, you know, personally, but it it, it resulted in them su not supporting um, his his. He was the defense minister. He wasn't even you know the president. But yeah. um, his takeover, they didn't support. So I think that was that was where it showed his. You know, he'd been in the mountains fighting for so long. He wasn't politically that astute because he hadn't been. You know, in the political capitals, talking. So that I think that was perhaps um, critical in showing that unless you sort of pave your way with all the the powers around you, you you can't um, you can't just do your own thing. Um, and so I think if he'd been if he'd had the support of you know various countries, whether it's the 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 you know the regional group of six or the entire Western coalition, um, then I think it could have worked. But I think if he didn't have that, as we saw in the nineties, he he couldn't make it work. Thank you, Carlotta. And um, now moving on to the tragic part of the story. Um, obviously, Masood yeah. was was assassinated just two days before nine eleven. Um, I was wondering if you could sort of contextualise this. I mean, it's, obviously it fits into the backdrop you've just been describing, but contextualise this, explain what happened and, and what were its sort of immediate consequences. Yeah, so, so Masood was fighting the, the Taliban for five years after losing Kabul, and he was pushed back uh, further and further into the corner, the northeast corner of Afghanistan. And... Um, 
what he noticed was particularly that there were there were increasing number of Arabs um, fighting alongside the Taliban who were helping push his forces back, um, and and also I think Pakistani troops he he saw and and even captured them at times. And so one of the things that he felt um, and was often talked about in his camp was to um, to speak out to the Arab world more. And so when, um, by chance, two men applied to interview him, two Arabs, um, and they they applied sort of through a friend of and, and who contacted one of his uh, Pashtun um, allies, um, Ustad Sayaf. Um, they asked to come and interview him. He said yes. Um, now he never. They never usually allowed Arabs I I into the Panjshir and into his area. But Masood did believe in talking to journalists. He really believed in getting the message out. So he ex agreed to do this, and um, it was a fatal decision for him because it was actually a, an Al Qaeda assassination plan. And they, the two men, came. They hung around for weeks to try and see him, um, and they had a, um, an explosive uh, bomb in the battery, camera battery belt. It wasn't actually in the camera, which is often thought, but it was in the belt around the waist of the cameraman. And um, he exploded it, and uh, actually, I think it wasn't the cameraman, it was the, the interviewer, but one of them. Um, he exploded the belt and it killed Masood almost instantly and um, very badly injured his um, friend and interpreter who was there with him, Masood Halili. Um, and uh, the, the second assassin was shot soon after by, by the guards who rushed into the room. Um, so it was, uh, it was in September, on September 9, 2001. As we all know, two days later, 9-11 happened, and as everybody pieced together um, the terrible attacks of 9-11 on, on the World Trade Center and on the Pentagon, um, it became clear that it was Al-Qaeda that had done those attacks. And then everyone um, understood that Masood had been killed as part of the whole plan um, because um, I mean, it became clear later, but it, anyone who understood the situation understood. And Masood Halili famously uh, told this to Scotland Yard. It's, it's, his statement is, is quoted at length in the book. As he lay in his hospital bed, he worked out who could have done this. And he understood that it was only uh, possibly al-Qaeda uh, mm. with the Taliban, with Pakistan, because Masood was the last obstacle to them taking complete control of Afghanistan. And Al-Qaeda, it turned out, bin Laden offered to the leader of the Taliban, um, I will remove him for you. He's, if he, you know, he's your last obstacle. I will do you this favor. I will remove him. It was Al-Qaeda, it was, it was bin Laden's way of currying favor with the Taliban leader, Mullah Omar, mm -hmm. who was actually upset with him at the time. Um, um, but also it was clear that they could see what would happen after the attacks of 9-11, that, um, that America would attack or that they would want um, put pressure on the Taliban 
and their main ally would become um, Masoud. Masoud would be uh, a key ally for them in their attack. And so to remove him before um, the attacks of 9-11 was uh, obviously, in their opinion, um, a sensible move. Mm. So uh, it, it all came, it, it all came together um, at the last minute, um, and you know, just two days before, we didn't even know for sure. Um, you know, us sort of reporters who were trying to find out how badly wounded he was, was he okay? That he was actually dead because they, the Afghans kept it secret for several days. Um, but it was um, it was a devastating blow, of course, to the United Front. Um, terrifying moment, I think, for them to lose someone who was um, such a critical leader. He, you know, without them, um, a lot of people thought they wouldn't survive a single day. Um, but what was most interesting was they did. They they had they came under attack almost immediately um, in the north, and they held. They immediately appointed Fahim, who was a very powerful, strong commander um, of Masoud's, and he and the rest of them, they held their positions um, until it was about a month later that the Americans actually mobilized and started their, you know, their attack against the Taliban. Mm. Um, and um, So it, it, it was actually, um, it was a critical... Uh, moment for the Northern Alliance or for the United Front, but it was it was both a devastating blow, but actually it was the moment that showed what Masoud had built because they actually did hold on and they held off um, ferocious Taliban um, assaults in those days after nine eleven. And are there are there grounds to suggest that Pakistan and the ISI knew? what was going on in terms of the death of Massoud and also 9-11, or is that too far-fetched? It's, it's not, but it's been very, very hard to pin down. So there are some of us who believe they did know, but we've had difficulty to prove it because, mm. you know, all these things are secret. But I think what, what, uh, what the book my father tried to show as he, pe- he pieces together the whole trajectory of the the men, the two bombers, um, Pakistan had to have known because of who they were and what they were doing, because they traveled through, repeatedly through Pakistan. They had um, one-year multi-entry visas, journalist visas to Pakistan, which they got in the embassy in London. Uh, that's unheard of. You, can, you just can't, as a journalist, you just don't get that. We never could get that. We can only get a single entry for a few weeks, you know. Um, so that means, and every visa, every journalist who gets a visa to Pakistan, it gets you get vetted by the ISI. Mm. So you know that that I mean, any journalist who's worked in Pakistan knows that and knows that these two men cannot have got uh, to move through Pakistan like that repeatedly without. Mm. Um, at the ISI knowing them and probably knowing their plans. Um, but, you know, we can't prove that because this is a, you know, it's a secret service and it's an undercover, so that you have to piece all those things together. The camera, 
travel was brought in from Quetta in Pakistan. Quetta is known really? to be the, the Taliban headquarters and where the ISI runs the Taliban from. So yes, the, the camera was brought in and arrived on a plane in a box. Um, and then we know there's an eyewitness who saw that, saw it arrive and saw it unpacked um, and given to these two men. And this same source then saw all the Al-Qaeda leaders come out to see off the two bombers when they were setting off on their trip to go really? to Kabul and then go. Yeah, so I mean, all these sort of things show you exactly their connections. Mm. Um, and I think anyone who knows Pakistan knows that means they would have been fully aware. But to be able to say that is very difficult. And what's interesting is America has stepped back from saying that. Mm. I think they just have decided to let, even if they know, and some of their specialists who I've talked to believe that Taliban knew and the Pakistanis knew, they can't, they can't prove it and the officials won't say mm don't want to go there you know so it's it's one it's one accusation too far for them so it's a very frustrating um end in a way not to be able to to pinpoint it but it's it's the same if you look at you know the the connection of the saudi government mm -hmm. with the whole event of the whole attacks of 9-11 um nobody you know the american government doesn't want to go there mm -hmm. So it's that sort of situation. In my, to my mind, there is no doubt that Pakistan knew or that the Taliban knew. Um, but it's it, it, all we could do, all my father could do in the book was piece together all those little pieces which show that it's most likely they knew. Yeah. But you can't say that they absolutely knew. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting stuff. Um, uh, and I guess back to your book, um, you back to the book it sort of weaves in Masood's personal diary entries uh which were translated by the late great um Bruce Wanell who hopefully one day we might uh, get someone on to speak about um but why did you think this was important to include those so well that actually is is I think one of the highlights of of the book um because uh, we, we were at a conference um, when the book first came out with my father and somebody asked, uh, is there anyone comparable, a sort of guerrilla leader like Masood who kept a daily diary all his life? Because that's what he did. He wrote almost every day. Mm. He wrote, uh, well, we know there's about 40 diaries. They're all in different sort of exercise books, little, you know, um, handwritten, um, sometimes he would write diligently, sometimes he would put it down and come back to it months later, sometimes I think they would get mislaid when he's running around the country. But he was very dedicated and very methodical um, in keeping things, and ex not only writing up the daily events, but in examining his battles, uh, his strategy, talking about how he was, you know, sorting out various problems of supply, of, of uh, truculent and difficult Mujahideen commanders, but also um, strategizing about uh, how he was going to expand in the north, how he was going to deal with the Russians, and so on. And it's really, um, so when, when someone raised when, what other commander has 
ever kept such a detailed diary. One of the professors at Cambridge piped up and said, well, only Caesar, Julius Caesar. <laughs> so that's quite... That's quite a comparison, yeah. and the, to think that no one has been so diligent since. Um, so anyway, it shows what's out there. My father only found out quite late um, that, Masoud had, that Masoud's family had the diaries after his death. He then asked to see some of them and was, was able to see extracts from some, but only from several volumes. So there's a, the great wealth is still not seen yet. So we hope very much the family will eventually, you know, open them up for, for academics and uh, universities and so on. Um, but what we did see and what Bruce uh, Wernell um, beautifully translated, because his mastery of both the, the, the Afghan language but also, you know, his po almost poetic English, um, uh, gives you a real feel for for things. Um, it shows just just so much of the man um, uh, of his sheer intelligence, but also his his discipline, his self discipline, his his ability to examine his own faults, to reflect on. Uh, there's one amazing passage where he reflects on: is he is he scared? Is he ready to die? You know, is he scared of death or of failure? Um, he's, he, he was actually said, he, in the end, he was most scared to be taken prisoner by the Russians and tortured and forced to give up, you know, the names of his, his men or the whereabouts of his men. So, um, so there's some really fascinating bits. And then towards the end of his life, there's some beautiful bits where he's just sitting in his library, lighting the fire and watch, looking out at the snow on the mountains. Um, or one time he's, you know, jotting down notes in the jeep and it's in a rainstorm, you know, and the men are outside praying. And So, you know, it's, it's just fascinating. I was fascinated by, by the diaries and I think uh, what is fascinating is to know that there's more to come. I hope one day we'll see, see the rest. Yes, definitely hope to see that. And thank you for those uh, mm. snippets and wonderful insights. I'm sure our listeners will be uh, definitely keen to check it out or the book yeah. out. Um, and and looking a bit at Masood's legacy now, he was obviously mm. called a national hero by President Karzai and, and his, his, his uh, day of his death is a national holiday. How do you think, though, he is remembered today in Afghanistan? Well, I think it's still a work in progress, actually, because, um, you know, he, he was made a hero, um, of course, and uh, but, you know, the Taliban then were very quick to pull down his portrait from the airport, and I'm not sure what's happened to the monument in uh, Masood Square, but, um, you know, right by the American embassy, but uh, I haven't been back to see that. But also, one of the videos that's most distressing just recently was... Um, Pashtuns with their children mm. walking it with their shoes on his grave on his tomb in in Panchia where he's buried that was just a couple um, of days ago wasn't it yeah yeah so that that's very shocking and and it's you know what's shocking to me is that Pashtuns are shocked by that you know they were sharing that on uh, social media and and saying how they shocked they are and how Taliban will rue the day because you know, Afghans don't forgive that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, Panjshiris are no different from other Afghans and they won't forgive that sort of 
that sort of, you know, that's very uncouth, very irreligious behavior. Um, so, so I think, of course, Masood's legacy is still certainly in Afghanistan, but but also I think worldwide is still um, still out for you know for um, study and and um, probably revision. Um, I think his diaries certainly um, come as a revelation, which I think perhaps a lot of people didn't know about. Um, I think his whole negotiation with the Russians is fascinating. There's several passages of that because he negotiated a ceasefire. That in Afghanistan, he's often criticized for, including the Taliban often criticize him for that. And the Pakistanis criticize. And in fact, I think even the Americans criticized him because he did that without really okaying it with other groups. Um, but he, he makes a very good explanation that that he was in, you know, his people were in dire straits. He didn't think they could survive um, another offensive in the Panjshir, um, and he needed to do it. And then he used it to to build up his strength and um, expand in the north. So there's there's a lot of things that a lot of people didn't know. I think which are still to come mm. out. Um, so. But, I mean, briefly one could say his legacy, I think his greatest legacy was fighting the Russians, um, how he did defend against them, and he was certainly um, critical in, in helping them decide to, to withdraw and give up the war. Mm. Uh, because Gorbachev famously, when Gorbachev was in power, um, he famously tried to win a, Against the the um, yeah win the war militarily and in, that included uh, one of the toughest offensives against Masood um, and it was only then later in the eighties that he decided to to withdraw the, the Soviet army so I think Masood was critical in in pushing the Russians to to give up on that mm. um, and then I think his his legacy as a leader and you know a uh, defense minister is flawed and still needs examination my father gives i think a first rough draft but it's by no means comprehensive i mean i think that that mujahideen period is is a very difficult um an ugly period for, mm. for all of the mujahideen and he bears responsibility because he was defense minister even if it wasn't his troops that perhaps that did the worst things. He was the defense minister. Yeah. And then I think his uh, his period of fighting the Taliban and then trying very late, if you recall, in the 2001, he traveled to Europe, to the European Parliament, to warn the world about Al-Qaeda and about Taliban. And he basically tried to say, it's not just us who are fighting the Taliban. Yeah. This, we're fighting for the world. This They will go on and... He was trying, he felt, he knew something was coming and he wanted to warn the world that they are going to cause great trouble across the world. And sure enough, they did. And so I think that um, that legacy as, as someone who saw the Taliban for what they were is, is, very, is less well known, but very important. Yeah. Um, so I think it's probably a, a, you know, a mixed, a mixed, um, bag which which still is going to take more study you yeah. know, especially because of the diaries we we need to see them all yeah 
And part, I guess part of his legacy that's still going today is his involvement of his son, also named Ahmed um, Masood, who's leading his own uh, fight against the Taliban today, which sort of makes this, the story incredibly relevant. But how does his fight against the Taliban differ to his father's? And is he having any success at destabilizing the Taliban? I think it's very early days. He doesn't have support. Uh, it looks like there's very little international support. Um, he, they're having they're having skirmishes. You know, they 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 say, and it's very hard for us to get there and see. You know, this is this is what my father did in the eighties. He actually trekked in for three months to actually see for himself were they really fighting the Russians and what you know how it was going on. Yeah. Now, very few of us have dared or even can think of doing that uh, to, 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 to hike into the Taliban-controlled uh, areas. I mean, you know, into, to reach them, to find, you know, you'd have to go through Taliban-controlled areas to get to them at this stage. So it's it would be extremely dangerous. Um, and, and it's not clear from you know what what is coming out they, they've they've got some skirmishes they're claiming some success they say they knocked down a helicopter they did show the the pilot and the crew on camera so presumably that is real um, but you know what does that mean that's very that's it's very small beer at this stage um, so I think I think um, I mean his supporters point out that, um, Ahmad is better off in a better position than his father. He's older. He's seen the world. He's had an education. He can speak English. You know, he's um, uh, he he's much more able to get the message out and to get support and to fight the Taliban. Um, but I would say right now there's there's obviously a complete apathy to support him um, because everybody's so burnt out with. The whole collapse of the, you know, the Afghan government and the Taliban takeover. Um, I think the Western world is obviously now absorbed with Ukraine anyway. So I think he's not going to get the international support. Um, and I think actually he himself is also not such a fighter. I think he also. Um, I don't, you know, I think his father was a real natural fighter. I'm not sure if Mas, uh, Ahmad Masood is. I think he's more um, would like to be a leader of a social movement that perhaps um, presses through other ways than just fighting, which might be the way to do it. Um, but I think he's got to do it for the long haul. I don't think you can turn the Taliban over in a in a short time. Yeah. Um, but long term, I think I, I think the Taliban also going to struggle to hold. Afghans don't like being pushed around, you know. And Taliban, that's their way. They try and rule by by force and fear. And Afghans, in the end, they don't like that. Mm. So you know, at the time when 9/11 happened, Masood was predicting that people were weary of the Taliban. So give them, you know, five six years or even less, then I think you might see. Uh, some more change coming in mm. Afghanistan. Well, perhaps, uh, perhaps a, a glimmer of of hope there. And uh, and and just one question: if if you were able now to sit down with with Masood today, Carlos, what would be the one question that you would ask him? 
gosh, that's that's a question I've never had put to me. Um, wow. Uh, I mean, maybe something funny, like what did he think when he first saw my father <laughs> coming, you know, coming or sitting across from him? Because what's quite interesting was they got on very well. Um, and, you know, my father was much older than him. He was in his 50s when he first hiked in to see Masood. Um, and Masood was, what, 20, 26 or 28? 28, 28, I think. And um, But they had these long discussions. Um, so I'd probably ask a funny story about that. But, I mean, you probably want a more serious question. Um, I'm not sure. What would you ask? Um, That's a good question. I haven't actually thought. Yeah. I mean, I'd probably love to hear the story uh, from himself of how he went out to talk to the Taliban and what he really thought of them. I think to hear that, because my father tells the story from from the others who were there, one of his aides who was with him, but that I think would be very fascinating to hear from himself. And then probably actually also an account of the American meeting Mm. with uh, just before the Taliban took over, because... Um, I think she's called Robin Rafel, who's this uh, um, secretary of, from the State Department who came to see him in outside Kabul at the time. And I think his account of that meeting would be very revealing, yeah. Uh, because that's when he understood the Americans were basically reading between the lines, telling him, don't fight the Taliban, let them take over. Mm. And that, that's kind of shocking. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, I think that's a yeah. great question to end on. Um, so, yeah, thank you for that hour that, you, that you've given us there. I think his life uh, is a real eye-opener for what was going on at the time and uh, some real home truths there about the involvement both in Pakistan and, and sort of America as well. So, mm. yeah, from Max and I, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank Carl, you. So. Well, thanks for your interest.